This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Scotty kidnaps a child. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gip, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we are watching the incredibly, confusingly named Star Trek the Animated Series, Eye of the Beholder. <laughs> confusingly named because it not only shares its name with the single most famous Twilight Zone episode, but also... and it particularly bad episode of next generation <laughs> so uh stop naming episodes this okay people yes please it doesn't even make any particular sense for the content of the episode <laughs> i can't find a particular reason it's named this yeah it's all about perspectives <laughs> you know yeah like i mean you could say that about basically anything <laughs> So it's not super specific to this episode, but it does technically apply. <laughs> it generally applies as does as as the general theme of perspective applies to any storytelling medium. <laughs> yes, um, you know what's going on is dependent on how you look at it. Yeah. Okay, so that's cool. like almost all literature and all movies and things like that. I guess I will say. We're still fairly into modernism at this point. That is a particularly hot take for modernism. <laughs> so, you know, because you know, there is a right answer for everything. But what if you look at it from a different perspective? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We didn't think of that. Uh, what if what we just outlaw whoever's perspective that is? There we go. And everything will be solved forever. Ever since man saw people with a different way of doing things and look, thinking about the world, their dream was to kill them so we didn't have to learn their new way of thinking about things and looking at the world. Oh dear, uh, welcome to like 80% of human history. Oh, yeah. That's why Futurama is such a good show. <laughs> okay, uh, this episode is written by a good old veteran of the Star Trekiness, wrote uh the deadly years as well as a piece of the action oh yeah good old oh yeah we're gonna have gangsters this week maybe it's hard to tell <laughs> written by david p Harmon. also did uh, gilligan's island brady bunch a lot of other things from this era yes uh, he also uh worked on something called the paper chase okay <laughs> chase that I have paper. no idea what that is is that like the rat race <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> you know just like you know there's so many random credits on a lot of these authors and things like that it's just kind of like i've never heard of this show and sometimes like i my my parents like my mom especially like watched a lot of old tv like all the time but i've never heard of like half of this stuff <laughs> yeah there's such a weird variety of old television that just didn't survive at all like yeah, it was uh, just uninteresting and no one remembered it and then it went away forever yeah Okay, so this is, a, I don't know, this is a trope that comes up a lot when people are making fun of science fiction, but I'm not aware of it being a trope that comes up a lot in science fiction itself. I was thinking about it, it's like, oh yeah, 
I've seen this, like, I've heard of this kind of episode. I've heard of this episode's, like, premise a lot. How many times have I actually seen it? I've seen it here, and I've seen it once in Orville. Uh, I, I guess Babylon 5 almost did it accidentally, but yeah. And I think in Futurama. Futurama spoofed yeah. it. Well, Futurama's, like, poking fun at all science fiction, you know? So if it's a trope that shows up somewhere else at least once, it'll be there. Yeah. So as much of a trope as this is, and I can't, dis- I'm of two minds whether I'm going to want to spoil it now or let you figure it out as we read. But <laughs> as much of a trope as this is is presented as, I'm having trouble thinking of how many times it's actually shown up. I'm, I'm having trouble of uh, coming up with examples. Maybe Planet of the Apes, kind of? Sort of. So anyway, I guess uh, we'll figure this out at some point because... It's it's weird. It's weird to hit tropes that you have heard of and know about, and then you're like, wait, how many times have I actually seen this trope? It's not exactly not like like they don't have this in like Stargate no. or <laughs> Babylon Five, as far as I'm aware. Or uh, in Babylon Five, there's kind of an accidental one where, uh, like, uh, I think it was the pilot movie. It's like we're gonna go through the alien sector, and it just kind of feels like a zoo, though that wasn't intentional and. When they did like a edit later, I was like, yeah, we're just going to cut out this section because it's really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, the aliens wouldn't have giant windows on their personal rooms here. No. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Do you think they wouldn't have giant windows on apartments you haven't seen modern Brooklyn architecture? Well, this is also the like the only place inside the uh, space station where they would have that, apparently. So, <laughs> All right. We are already getting sidetracked. So maybe we should... Start Begin. the synopsis thing. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, no guest stars. No, no guest stars. I mean, technically, you've got um, the same people who are always doing voices listed as guest stars. <laughs> guest starring Michelle Barrett and uh, Scotty and Scotty and Scotty and Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> James Duhand is Scotty at all. Hey, the Enterprise has arrived at the planet Lacra 7 in search of a lost six-person science crew who has disappeared without trace. Uh-oh. Uh, the ranking officer on the science ship, a Lieutenant Markell, made the decision to beam down the entire crew in search of half the crew, which apparently is a bad command decision that they criticize. They go like, ah, oh, anyone would have done that. <laughs> it's like, well, we have to go find our people, but at the same time, this is really kind of silly move here. A little bit, yeah. This is this is something that they that they teach you in uh, emergency responder stuff. If it's better to like leave a person there than create two injured people. Yep. <laughs> so you know, but just makes your job harder. Yeah. Now it's somebody else's job to get both of you out instead of just having to figure out how to get the one person out. So Kirk, Spock, and McCoy need to beam down to search, but they don't have time to do a proper orbital scan. For some reason, so they have no idea what they're going into. Oh, they're just impatient. Don't worry about it. They beamed out of the same location that the previous crew did, which turns out to be right next to a boiling hot spring. Oh my, um, maybe this was a terrible place to co- uh, come down on. Uh, uh, McCoy even makes a comment, it's like, yeah, if we just a few feet over there, we'd all be dead. <laughs> yeah, stop, bo- stop beaming down into boiling who knows what's. Yes, <laughs> maybe you don't have to do a full orbital s- survey of the planet, but maybe just where you're beaming down would be good. Spock points out that the conditions on this planet are very unusual, considering the environment that they would expect to find based on what kind of planet this is. So, some sort of M-class planet, but 
apparently we're suddenly in Yellowstone National Park. Which isn't oh. on an M-Class planet at all. <laughs> You'd never find something like boiling hot springs in a habitable human planet. <laughs> That's just impossible. So before they can do much about anything, they are attacked by a large red sea creature thing that rushes them and they stun it, but they're able to subdue it before any harm is done. And it's basically just to have a critter there. Now, I would like to point out that this critter doesn't even get to land. They just kind of stun it in the water and it's like screaming at them. And it's like, maybe it just wants them to leave. Well, it's an odd one because it starts yelling at them. And they go, that thing might be able to get on land. And Koi goes, I know it can. How? <laughs> I think uh, McCoy is the annoying ca character for today's episode because he just makes all these weird claims and is also kind of bigoted towards Spock like more than usual. So it's being very weird this episode. So maybe uh, they're, you know, the reason they couldn't scan the planet is because like McCoy is like inhabited by some sort of evil <laughs> being and he destroyed the scanners and now he's being all sort of nasty to things. And, but that's a plot that's not actually in the episode. So I'm just making things I'm sorry. Up. We don't have time to scan. McCoy is being pissy. <laughs> so they attempt to contact the earlier team and do not receive a voice reply. But they do get a fix on their communicator's position and set it on foot. They soon reach a large arid desert where they're attacked by a giant rocky T-Rex looking thing. Different from the rocky T-Rex looking thing from mud. It looks a bit more like... Um, the um doomsday guy from soup from death of superman not the one in the movie the one in the comic book oh yeah hmm. so it's some sort of big dino guy dude with like rock Maybe spikes lady. yes <laughs> very pointy so they stun it too and it falls and crushes mccoy <laughs> under its tail and they have to dig him out with again no consequences to the, to this happening so uh, mccoy your bones should be, like, shattered because this thing's, like, freaking huge, it man. Should. Maybe it's just you seem okay. hollow. Very light. So, so it is a precursor to a bird. Got it. Kirk and Spock think that the thing looked familiar, like a creature that they saw on another planet that one time. And the weird desert thing looks a bit like that thing's natural habitat. Yeah, it was like a cannabis whatever there. It's like, you know, this is just so familiar. Hmm. Maybe there's some sort of convergent uh, evolution going on, but we've never seen anything like that where two plants, you know, thousands, you know, hundreds of light years apart, somehow managed to create America or something like that. That would just be that impossible. would be silly. That'd be very <laughs> silly. Yes. Soon they come to another environment, this time a lush rainforest that probably should not be in close proximity to an arid desert. Yeah, this just seems like a bad bit of planning here. Who's the urban development person I will here? say, though, that was one of my favorite Minecraft worlds. <laughs> it's like, suddenly, we're in a jungle. <laughs> jungle abutting desert. It's a fun transition to play with. <laughs> no savannah in between, just trees suddenly after sand. Uh, Scotty gets in touch with them to let them know that they found what appears to be a population center a few kilometers from where they are, coincidentally in the same place that the signal's coming from. Well, that's convenient. Well, maybe the uh, the the folks that we're trying to look for uh, have just been living it up and uh, you know you know live the sweet life there at some sort of weird alien spa or something like that. That'd be cool. So before continuing, McCoy starts drinking the local water. Hang on, McCoy. Out of what should be normal concern, Spock decides that they should test the water to see if it's potable. Good plan. He discovers the water is too pure. Okay then. 
That's a little weird. Being this entire environment is probably artificial. Though, if water's too pure, you probably shouldn't drink it. Don't drink distilled water. Yeah, it's not good for you. You need, like, certain amounts of, like, you know, minerals and things like that for your body to be able to operate it properly. Yeah, it won't hurt you immediately, but you will... Um, actually, it'll probably contribute to hyponatremia pretty quickly, which is a lack of salt in your body that causes very similar symptoms to dehydration. So you'll have a bad time, mm. in short. So this suggests an advanced alien intelligence capable of terraforming a planet on a fairly large scale. In a very patchwork scale as well. Uh, before they can speculate any further, they're attacked by purple pterodactyls. <gasps> Wait a moment. These guys seem familiar. Are purple pterodactyl counter is now up to three which is already three <laughs> more than i thought we'd get to when we started doing this <laughs> let's find out if we'll get to more uh, as the uh, the rest of the series it continues. might i don't know it's insane i wish i had a little i wish we had a visual like ding counter every time we hit one of these things now i i will once again appraise the animated series where it's like we're gonna take full use of the ability to have non-humanoid critters that we're going to run into and then they just reuse the animation <laughs> i know which is pretty disappointing because this episode so far has my favorite non-humanoid critters right, we have a diverse set of things going on here so the phasers don't seem to have any effect but the pterodactyls fly away anyway as if they hit some sort of invisible force field well that's weird uh who would just project a force field in old nowhere and then they're kidnapped by slug elephants well uh I guess this is to be expected, given what we've seen so yeah, far. These giant pink slug things have a trunky hand appendage that they use to grab the crew with and uh, move away at speed. Wait a moment. Are these aliens, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know believers in the giant fl- flying spaghetti monster? They could be. It does seem like that kind of thing. Noodly appendage. <laughs> So they arrive at the large city complex where everything is quite pink and purple, matching the, uh, you know, slug things. Yep. The crew is put into a holding area with more of their super advanced force fields, apparently. We can't see them. They're that advanced that they don't need to draw anything. Well, I guess this is, you know, sort of hinting at TNG level force fields where... You don't really re- interact with it unless you, you you poke it, but they don't even bother like animating when they poke it. So <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just an invisible wall. Yeah, it's that advanced. He pokes it, and his hand just just like, oh, I'm like like a mime trapped in a glass box. <laughs> Wait a moment, are these aliens actually super powerful mimes? Yes, super powered mimes. <laughs> we don't have to define the box ourselves. You'll define it for us. Ho ho. So. They tank their equipment, again suggesting they're probably intelligent because they can take the toys away. And McCoy makes a interestingly logical assumption, concludes that they're being treated as if they had just found any other unknown life form. Like first examine them to make sure they don't have pathogens and aren't dangerous, and then try to poke at them until they figure out they're intelligent. Uh, finally, McCoy's being useful for something. Good. The uh, creatures keep staring silently at all of them. Uh, Spock concludes that this means they're telepathic. He can get sort of impressions because Vulcans are also a bit telepathic, but their brains work at such a higher level that they can't contact at all. It's like the crew are ants to these super advanced alien thingamabobs. You are like flies to me. 
The crew were soon taken out of the holding area and past many other alien species, each one its own distinct habitat, like they're in an alien zoo. Oh, this is kind of cool. Uh, are, you gonna, are you guys going to be showing us all the little critters you tracked down here? And uh, we'll make uh, first contact and we get, become fast friends? Maybe. Sort of. <laughs> Broadly. <laughs> so they arrive at the human habitat where they find the other six members of the team they're looking for. Oh, thank goodness. This isn't another death trap. We're just going to be kept here forever. Yeah, much better. So they've been here since they beamed down and they can't communicate because the aliens took all their equipment and keep monkeying with it. Uh, they keep it in a display case outside the habitat. Despite many tries to escape and communicate, the only thing they can do is get the aliens to jiggle a little bit. Spock tries the same thing, gets the same response, and concludes that they are in fact being laughed at. <laughs> oh, you so silly critters. Your, your attempts at telepathy here are just so cute and amusing. <laughs> Inside their new home, they find one of the science crew is sick, despite them being provided with plenty of food and water and whatever else they need. They've been unable to do anything about her infection. Uh, McCoy could take care of it very easily with his medical equipment, but they took it away when they were taken. So Spock suggests that he think of the med kit as a harmless way to save the sick crew member, since after all, they're in a zoo and they're trying to take care of them and they're giving them adequate food and supplies. So maybe they'll be able to uh, convince them to hand it on over. So they bring in a That's supply of food sense. and inside is the med kit perfectly preserved. Nice. Well, it worked. Yeah. With this new line of communication, Spock suggests that they have a plan of action now because if they pretend that one of them is ill and all concentrate really hard on the fact that they're ill and that the communicator is the only thing that will save them they might be able to get in contact with the ship all right kirk um do, do can we beat you up or are you just gonna oh, just he gonna just lay lays down, down. Okay. <laughs> yeah mccoy doesn't even have to use one of his like this will make it look like you're hurt drugs mccoy i don't need uh <laughs> kirk falls over they are able to concentrate and get a small one of the creatures to tentatively grab a communicator and bring it to Kirk, who shouts immediately for beam up. The young creature grabs the communicator away from him, causing them to be beamed up instead. Well, um, I guess we at least showed them. We're still stuck here, though. Spock feels the larger creatures are now particularly worried about the disappearance of the young one. Uh, understandable. So they begin probing Kirk's mind, an activity that causes him great pain. Spock tells him that he should fight it because if the aliens break through his mental defenses with how differently their minds work, it will drive him mad. Um, uh, sure. We'll just go yeah. with that. Makes as much sense as anything, I suppose. <laughs> On the ship, the small alien grabs Scotty and carries him to the bridge, apparently starts playing with the ship and sends it out of orbit. Well, um, I guess we're all going to die now. Yeah, this does sucks. seem like. Kirk is still under attack on the planet. Uh, with one of them failing to be able to do anything, more of them join in. Spock and the rest of the crew also try to concentrate and protect Kirk's mind, and it's a mind-to-mind -mind battle. Who knows who's going to win? And then Scotty beams down. Hi, Scotty. Are you here to save us from this meta-concert business? Scotty ex machina. Well, you are the most competent member of the ship, uh, so do I, how'd you save us this So week? Scotty's brought the little guy back. Turns out the small one was able to communicate with Scotty, because I guess Scotty's mind just works on a higher level than the rest of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> Scott is just that awesome. Hing convinced them that he's not a pet. And he gave it every record on the Enterprise. And it read it all. Because it's got an IQ of several billion despite being six years old. That's not how IQ works. No, not really. You know, uh, it's all about averages and, you know, deviations from a mean 
and races testing. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, this thing would have an IQ well below 100 because it would have no clue about American history or any of the other junk we say we're supposed to know on there. <laughs> yes. Maybe they've been to the, uh, the, the, the Omega Gloric planet, so they know all about that it. That is true. <laughs> they might already know about it. So now the little one's back. It's able to explain all this to the older ones. So everything's fine now. They're able to sort of communicate with Spock now because they didn't really know. Well, they kind of knew they were intelligent. They didn't really realize that they didn't like being there. Like, yeah, we kind of like don't want to be imprisoned here because this sucks. Also, we have a spaceship, so we could just leave if you don't want us here. Yeah. So eh? now they see that they're actually on the way to evolving into an advanced species like they are given a few centuries. Their centuries, not our centuries. So that could kind of mean anything. Could be next week for yep. all we know. They let the humans go and invite them to return back in a few thousand of their years. The Spock will have to spend some time working out exactly how long that may be. And as Kirk points out by then, not really our problem. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Spock, uh, yeah, if you plan to live forever, cool. But otherwise, yeah, don't worry about it. They'll, I guess we'll be in contact at that yep. point. That's it. <laughs> That's all. Yep. My... Uh, <laughs> Someone I was talking to came up with a very good fan theory that these things actually are what happens when the Burgess Shale um, Opabenia critter with the little trunk nose uh, evolves fully. It's going to touch all the things with mm -hmm. it. <laughs> the trunk nose. It's actually way more advanced than we are. The trunk nose, the vacuum cleaner shape. <laughs> Wait a moment. Maybe that's why the Daleks have a you know, little gun thing that kind of looks like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> They're trying to emulate this. <laughs> so, uh, that was an episode. Yeah, it's not saying anything in particular. It's imaginative. I do like the, the new aliens. Yeah, I believe this is a, uh, a example of high concepts. Like, what if Kirk and company ended up in an alien zoo? Then we just kind of see what happens. Everything does kind of resolve itself degree, off yeah. screen. There's <laughs> not really much... Uh, as far as action from our heroes here, other than wandering around, discovering stuff, and then, all right, we're going to try to, like, mind at them for a bit, and that kind of works, and then other stuff happens to sort of resolve the plot. Yeah, well, they're, they're able, they are able to open up just enough communication for things to, like, for them to half escape. Yes. <laughs> attempt to escape. Yeah, they attempt to escape in such a way that Scotty has to come save them. Yes. So thankfully Scotty is just that awesome. Yeah, thankfully Scotty was there to be able to actually save them. So that's nice. That's nice for them. <laughs> yeah. How many yeah. how many episodes of this would like have gone so bad if Scotty wasn't on the ship to just save them off screen? Uh a number. It's like, all right, so uh you know, the, the Enterprise is trying to be, you know, being uh, waylaid up in orbit. Oh, Scotty's figured it out and uh Come back and uh, prepare to save us all if we need to. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, no, the the ship's being uh, buffeted by sound waves or something like that. Um, thankfully, Scotty's not an idiot, and he's gonna, you know, put up the shields and uh, tell the uh, ambassador to go, go, you know, go away. Uh, <laughs> put it nicely. <laughs> and, and various other sort of examples like that. We're just like Scotty's in command now, and now. They're doing a thorough search for, uh, you know, where they may have gone and, uh, oh, hey, we found the planet where they've been uh, kid, well, you know, Kirk and company been uh, kidnapped to. That's kind of cool. 
Um, thank, lovely, Scotty, you are here to pick us up. <laughs> so, as we alluded to before, despite the human zoo thing being something that everyone thinks of eventually when you're talking about, like, sci-fi things, I can't tell how often this has actually come up. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a Twilight Zone episode. There's a few things that seem to be spoofing that, and that's most of it that I've been able to track down. Now, thankfully, we do live in the far future of the uh, 21st century, uh, and uh, through the, the power of internet, I have found a TV tropes page on this exact Oh, show. excellent. I was looking for that. I yes. couldn't find that. <laughs> so take us down the rabbit hole of the sci-fi zoo. So you, you did mention uh, the Orville on uh, Star Trek, of course. Uh, apparently there's a bit in Doctor Who. Um, there is uh, uh, s- things sort of tangential to uh, some of that. Uh, like in Red Dwarf, they have the hollow ship where a dude shows up and just sort of, it's like, oh, this is quaint. This are some throwback humans and various critters here. And, uh, you know, well, let's go and sort of treat them as a, as a, like a zoo example here, even though it's, we're on their ship and they're not on ours or anything like that. Uh, there's also the Twilight Zone you also mentioned. Uh, and uh, I guess, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark did an episode of like that? So oh, I guess I could, I guess that, that doesn't surprise me. Yes. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, you know, other ones, uh, you know, I guess Guardians of the Galaxy kind of does that with the Collector because um, he does keep a bunch of random aliens and stuff in his uh, kind of collection there, but, you know, uh, it's not really a human zoo specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently there's a deleted uh, see, uh, section from Mary Poppins uh, where uh, humans were kept in cages to gawk, be gawked out. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think Mary Poppins so, uh, was going there. So there is a, 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 a few more examples, but honestly, not that many. Uh, you know, I, I guess... If you want to expand your search to like video games, it's always Stellaris, but you know, Stellaris is also kind of borrowing tropes that show up in other sci-fi and putting it into a video game. Yeah. So the super count. So the thing that interests me with these is the the humans in a zoo idea is always somewhat predicated on the idea that zoo is prison with spectators. I bet, yeah. Which that you are. You, you, your, your, your uh, autonomous, uh, autonomy of movement has been denied you, and now we're going to look at you on top of that, so it's embarrassing? Which is actually sort of an issue, because it's, that, that idea is fairly damaging. A lot of people are probably at least passingly familiar with the somewhat mixed reputation people are having towards zoos recently. There's some, like, sort of PETA-style activist groups talking about zoos um there was the whole thing with uh, the gorilla a while back harambe the yeah uh, the, you know it's like oh there's somebody in the enclosure let's shoot the gorilla. yeah which like, to, like that was heartbreaking and awful and you weren't being nice to the poor zoo people so let's go over zoos because this is weird because i didn't expect this to be a controversial topic <laughs> but apparently it is oh, given yeah, the it's... internet now <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, it, it, you know, the, the ethics of zoos is has been kind of around in various forms for quite some time. Just how we talk about it has kind of taken certain directions recently. Yeah. Well, the thing is, your ethics of zoos has changed a bit. And there's there's there are unethical practices and there are ethical practices. But the blanket idea that people have 
is kind of predicated on putting a human value on what you're doing for non-human animals, which is its own problem. But let's just start. Let's just start at the beginning for our history stuff. Um, these were not zoos because they were menageries, but the oldest records we have of people keeping animals that are non-native to the environment date back to as much as like Egypt and Mesopotamia to like, you know, 2500 BCE. So uh, let's get ourselves a, a hyena and bring it to like the Hittite Empire. Yeah, they, like they went out and got giraffes and elephants and bears and all kinds of exotic birds. So like this, this is a thing that people have done for a while. And that is like the menagerie idea. This is a rich dude who can afford to keep a bunch of animals that is doing so. This is like your, I don't know, Mesopotamian Tiger King. Yes. Or uh, recently in uh, one of my local events, um, a bunch of monkeys were, you know, escaped a, a private collector's uh, situation there and were like hanging out in like a cemetery, I think Ugh. it was. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And some of this stuff is. I'm struggling because I know people have opinions on these things. Some of this stuff is is dangerous and bad because private collections don't have to meet ethical standards. They're there for display purposes. Uh, a lot of people don't keep their animals particularly well or know what they're doing. There's a lot of privately owned semi-zoos, things that like represent themselves as zoos that do this. And there's a lot of private collections where people have just bought themselves one or more exotic animals and then they can't take care of them adequately. Welcome to Johnny J's uh, Roadside Zoo. Uh, come look at our giant cat. Uh, it may have been a lion at some point, but it's kind of lost all its fur. Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, so, more modern zoos. Um, in the 18th century, Age of Enlightenment sort of thing, people wanted to keep animals for scientific interest. Right, scientific reasons. Want to learn about the these aliens, you know, you know, creatures here from far around the world. We could learn so much from them. So let's go uh, grab them and bring them to England. Now, there were a couple of problems here. Uh, people didn't think that animals' habitat mattered very much. This is where you get these depressing zoo ideas of, like, you know, a lion in a large concrete enclosure with nothing else in there. Oh, this fine. is a long time ago. This is before modern biological sciences or any understanding of how to care for animals very adequately. Uh, there was actually a particularly interesting interview I just heard with David Attenborough where he was talking about one of his earliest movies. And the, the entire thing was they were going out to find a particularly rare species of bird, one that we would in modern times think of as endangered. Um, and they just, the, the entire expedition was this camera crew following the expedition out to find the thing and bring it back for the British Zoo. And he said, like, at the time, that's how everyone thought about nature, scientists included. There's just, there's animals out there. There's plenty of them. 
you as an individual aren't going to be able to do anything to affect nature on any kind of scale. So you bring an animal back to the zoo, and if it dies, you go get another one. Yeah, and so you are, you know, you're not going to be harming anything at all because there's just so many of them out there, and we just sort of assume this. Now, the modern concept of a zoo, like discounting the privately owned like depressing people don't know what they're doing kind of enclosure things that we've already lightly covered modern zoos are deeply tied in to efforts of conservation like a lot of people think of zoos as educational institutions which there is a decent amount of that there's a lot of you know animal education public outreach fundraising that sort of thing but a, a very very large function of modern zoos is animal conservation. This is where you have your breeding programs, your endangered species protection stuff, your keeping of animals that are technically extinct in the wild. So if uh, we were to just sort of put them out there, we don't know if they would survive, but uh, at least they're here and able to survive. Yeah, I mean, I actually thought this was kind of interesting. Where I'm from in uh, Arizona, there was a species of parrot called the thick-billed parrot that used to be native there. Uh, it no longer is. It's extinct. But here, where I live now in Brooklyn, uh, not in Brooklyn, but the Queens Zoo, which is a little north of where I live, um, has a population of thick-billed parrots. So they are still out there, just over there now. They have captive populations of various endangered or extinct animals that are being well cared for and, you know, are used for purposes of conservation and breeding and hopefully eventual reintroduction if things work out well. This is like a primary purpose of modern modern zoos is this kind of animal conservation, um, rehabilitation in a lot of cases. Like a lot of zoos have, you know, very specialized medical facilities that you can use to rehabilitate injured wild animals. And... Um, hopefully some sort of conservation reintroduction efforts to help save endangered or extinct in the wild populations of animals. Effectively uh, getting a robust enough population under uh, direct protection so that, you know, at some point we'll be able to start releasing them back in the wild and hopefully they'll be able to get back to being out in the wild. And I thought this episode was very interesting in terms of the zoo thing because it's one of the few ones I've seen where they didn't completely frame it as a prison allegory at worst it's like a curiosity sort of thing yeah they they don't show they're not there long enough to talk about really like why they're keeping these animals i guess they're saying scientific interest which you know was more of the vein at the time but the animals are all well cared for in natural habitats which is something we learned to do give the animals an appropriate habitat so that they are no longer stressed like, like we've created zoo environments where animals aren't, are no longer stressed to be in them. We've learned a lot since 50, 60 years ago. And they, they are caring for their zoo specimens. They're taking care of them to the best of their ability. They're using their telepathic thingy to learn how to take care of them better, which is a thing we don't get to do. Uh, you know, the best we could do is sort of observe and uh, see what happens. And what was particularly interesting is they don't actually have to try to stage some kind of weird escape attempt or do the stupid Orville thing of making fun of reality television because what the frick was that my god but 
Um, as soon as they figure out that one, humans are intelligent and two, don't want to be there, they let everyone leave with no fuss. Oh, uh, and we were just not really in a position to be able to communicate with you guys before. Uh, 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 you can go. Uh, bye. <laughs> and it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but we we do have something sort of analogous in modern zoo situations we have these things that we call uh ambassador animals which is generally an animal that you would not normally be able to keep in a zoo environment well uh, the the first thing that comes to mind is an albatross which is not an animal that you can really keep in a zoo environment it's a it's a bird that spends the majority of its time flying around the open ocean it's huge yes huge and large but every now and then you get one that is too injured to return to the wild, or uh, sometimes you have animals that are born in captivity and have imprinted on humans to the point that they can't survive apart from humans anymore. It's, it's kind of, you know, the, the animal's kind of dependent on us being there in some capacity. Yeah. And releasing it would be a bad idea because they would die. Yeah, so releasing it would be unethical in that case. So yeah, zoos usually use these as what's called ambassador animals, where they take them out for demonstrations, use them for teaching purposes, and help you learn about the wild animals. Um, but this, I don't have like an example of this particularly, but like if they learned that one of these animals could be re-released, or like one of them recovered enough that it could be re-released, they do. They aren't keeping the animal there for no reason. So a lot of the weird, there's a weird thread in this kind of thing of like animals deserve to and long to be free. Oh my God. And um, no, there's, there's a certain, there's certain requirements that animals have that we try to meet as best we can to keep animals healthy and not stressed. The most of the animals that we keep, we keep in good enough conditions that they don't mind and a lot of them are there for conservation purposes where they either wouldn't be able to survive in the wild currently, it's dangerous for them to go back into the wild, or we have to keep a careful eye on the remaining population of animals that we have so that they don't go extinct. So the, the moral fat thing that we put on zoos, like there's, there is ethics in this. We have to take, if you're taking responsibility for the life of another creature, you need to do it to the absolute best of your ability which we didn't always in the past and zoos have been moving more in that direction now and now they're pretty danged good at it so I, I guess the you know a certain amount of the criticism of, of um, you know modern zoos now there are zoos out in the world that are actually you know not up to modern uh, ethics here so just kind of putting those aside for the moment the ones that actually are following you know you know the the, the well uh, learned guidelines and, and plans here, they, you know, you know, are not necessarily being analyzed in an active fashion by those who are most critical of them. Um, but that critique has been part of why they are actually so good now. Yeah, the only problem that I have with the way we talk about animal care and zoos is that they are lumped together as a monolith. There are conservation zoos, public zoos, uh, ones that do an incredible job are incredibly scientifically and conservationally useful and we would not be able to do a lot of the conservation work that we do without them as institutions but they're being lumped in with 
Joe's safari adventure off Highway yeah. Five. <laughs> so you know, it, it's so the I guess to a certain degree, it makes things like that uh, the outreach kind of essential to set aside the it's to separate the, the the two so that you know those that uh you know are going out in the community or you know zeus bringing people in and showings like no th- we're actually treating our animals well and here's what we're doing with you know you know with them to help their lives be better in a very active sort of fashion so they're not just here on display you know it, all that sort of becomes essential uh in order to separate them from you know this you know very you know for-profit nonsense places there uh, so that you got, so you can continue to do this mission and actually continue to help the animals. Because uh, if that wasn't there, then public opinion would, you know, eventually turn against them. And then, well, suddenly they're shutting down and animals that are being kept in captivity because they aren't, you know, they're extinct in the wild. Well, they don't really have anywhere to go anymore other than to Joe's crazy, you know, uh, you know, roadside attraction there. Yeah, which is a particular or, problem. Or on the wild where they might not survive, so... And the main problem that you wind up in here is if if you're trying to put your own human reaction to things onto another animal, you you can't keep doing it in this weird one-for-one thing. You look at an animal in a zoo and you go like, oh, they spend their whole life in this weird tiny little thing. Like like I was reminded of this thing. There was a there was an argument about aquariums where like um I mean, whales are too large to really keep in captivity, but even for, like, you know, rehabilitation purposes, they're like, oh, this whale is in just a giant empty tank with nothing in it. It's like, whales live in the middle of the ocean, which is a large empty space with nothing in it. Yeah, the, as long as it's large enough so that it feels like a large empty space with nothing in it, they're probably going to be okay as far as the environment uh, uh, core goes. Yeah, like, we... we put our own things like oh if you put a human in there they'd be desperately depressed it's like yeah that's because humans don't live in the middle of the ocean yeah <laughs> but what if we did man <laughs> and they even had this very interesting like sort of accidental discovery like this was something that was i think suspected or half known um aquariums have actually been doing a little badly with their penguin populations during the pandemic because the penguins like seeing people around. <laughs> and so uh, if they're not seeing the people around, it's like, oh, we don't have as many friends. Yeah. There's, oh, a, no. there's usually a lot of activity and stimulation for them because there's people in and out of there constantly. Now there's not. They've actually started showing them movies. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I'd seen some stuff about like uh, showing them videos of like people and things like that, but I've not heard anything about movies. <laughs> yeah, apparently they show them Christmas movies because there's snow and bright colors. Oh, huh, nice. So, uh Hits all their buttons. <laughs> I think they said that their favorite seems to be Elf. <laughs> nice. So yeah, not now, like uh, like we're putting this idea onto things. Like if you think about it as a wild animal, like we've we've learned a lot about how to take care of wild animals and give them the proper conditions. But now you're a you're a wild animal who's now living in a completely predator free environment with all the food and resources you could ever want. Oh, this is kind of kind of swanky. Nice. <laughs> I'd have to. Run for my life occasionally? Neat. So there's definitely an ethical discussion to be had. And zoos have had it for a long time. They've worked really hard to address it. We're um tends to be ignoring that and lumping them all together as a monolith and then judging them all by the standards of 
the likes of PETA and other um, bad faith animal rights organizations who do not do what they purport to do. Like look, look into the history of some of these places. They, they are, they're not great. Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah, we're going to quote rescue a bunch of pets and then put them to sleep. Yeah. What? <laughs> like, this, this, you're not helping. So there's a lot of bad faith arguments that take off because it's cool and trendy. Like you can go like, Oh, animals in cages. Oh my God. Sad bunny photos or something. And you wind up with problems here. And I know this is a controversial topic. I'm trying to cover it both lightly and like, and uh, thoroughly. So it's kind of, I'm hitting a weird middle and I know I am from the covering this. I just know that there's a weird controversy here that I've followed around through like various people who actually know what they're talking about. Animal handlers and people who work at zoos that I read articles from online and like the the entire controversy is just ignoring the difference between a good institution that knows what they're doing and a bad one that doesn't and we should be getting rid of the one but we should also be funding the other yeah so uh let's support you know the ones that are actually helpful and get rid of the ones that are not you know uh, <laughs> I, I as far as uh, actual ethics violations at actual like legit uh, zoos uh, in my general uh, part of the country. The the most recent one was actually not anything to do with the animals, but somebody like was getting kickbacks for getting some uh, construction done. So, you know, if we're going to only have ethics violations at zoos th- of that sort, I'd say that's a win as far as the animals are concerned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, sure. It's kind of, uh, Sucks that our public funds are being weird, weirdly manipulated like this. But as long as the animals are okay, you know, if you're looking at it from that, you know, from that end of things, then that's not a terrible thing. It still sucks for you know, uh, you know the whole uh, uh, you know embezzling. But as far as the animals are concerned, uh, no harm. So hooray! <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should be doing better with the people too. But since we're focusing yeah. on animals, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we're uh, focusing on animals here. <laughs> Now, uh, there is like, uh, like associations and things like that, uh, like zoos and aquariums and such out there, uh, uh, you know, the U S at the very least that, uh, do sort of have standards that they are kind of unifying behind here and, uh, doing their best to make sure you know, everyone, you know, every organization and person who's a member is following these things. Uh, and so it's not like, it's just, you have to sort of trust them. It's like, no, there's actually an organization there. And if there is a fundamental problem that is, you know, widespread and things like that, you know, go to that organization and say, hey, what's up? And, you know, you know, either convince them that there's a problem, if there is actually one, or, con- you know, converse with them and figure out what's actually going on. Because sometimes you might not get what's going on. Sometimes there might actually be a problem. But have the conversation instead of just assuming that everyone's, keeping you know uh, a tiger in their cage because you know uh you know at their local zoo because they want to have something on display and no other reason yeah i mean tigers especially tigers are incredibly endangered in their natural habitat so uh you know it'd be nice if that wasn't the case but unfortunately well poachers are a thing and well environmental degradation is a thing and all sorts of other things that are making life uh, more difficult for animals in the wild so uh i guess if you want to be actually caring about uh, you know, the welfare of animal populations, the big thing might be to 
I don't know, help fight environmental degradation and all that nonsense there, you might be more effective in the long run. Even if you want to focus on this, just learn where the good places are and work with Mm -hmm. them or against the ones that aren't very good. Indeed. I see more outrage about freaking normal zoos because they're larger institutions with a better media profile than the dang highway place that's taking bad care of their animals. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess be more discerning and don't just go for what's highly visible. All right. That was our super controversial episode. <laughs> Apparently. About stuff here. Uh, do you want me to sing a song to uh, get us on to the next section here or, or what? And if you have anything after that, the only next section I've got is the game show. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I, I did at the uh, end of the, uh, at the, end of the previous episode sort of reference the Simon and Garfunkel's song. Uh, and so I, I figured I'd rewrite a small section of that to be very Star Trek related. Okay, if people aren't tired of us singing by now, because we did it the yes, one well, time. I, well, I, I'm going to be more of a, a spoken word thing here because I okay, don't have the background. Okay, it up. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you, know, you know, something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. The Vulcans stand for honesty. Gorn are insincere. And the pack lids are kindly, but they're dumb. Cardassians are skeptical of changes in their cages, and the Talosian Keeper is very fond of rum. Klingons are reactionaries, Bajorans are missionaries, Romulans plot in secrecy, and humans turn on frequently. What a gas! You gotta come and see at the zoo. And then it repeats for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So I I, I figured a little rewrite was uh, quite... Okay, I think that's all we had. We didn't get as dark and depressing, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I guess we were kind of on the similar mind of uh, what to talk about. You just had better stuff to talk about as far as that concerned. Uh, I had a whole uh, sheet about the, uh, you know, the ethics organizations there, but your direction was much more uh, coherent. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! I'm coherent for Hooray. once. Now for some incoherence, it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show. I hope you're having a wonderful time. Our various uh, contestants, animals, uh, zookeepers, and all that have been making up a lot of points this week. Uh, and we uh, have a few prizes to hand out. I hope you're all uh, feeling quite, uh, uh, you know, quite quite enthusiastic. And maybe making lots of squawks, jeers, and other sort of sounds in order to uh, express your joy about these various prizes here. The first one, which is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to our big uh, slug friends here with their mind powers and things like that, for being able to maintain a nonsensical environment without too much effort, apparently, and to be able to do the whole mind-reading business and psychic, con- you know, coherent brain-reading stuff. You know, all that here. Again, what do they win? They win government grants and more funding, because if they can keep this kind of thing, like, we should never have an environmental problem in the Federation again. Yeah. It's like, hey, we got, uh, you know, something that's in danger to slug aliens. You want to, like, keep an eye on this guy here? Well, they must Uh, have their own prime directive. Because it's like, whoops, you're a pre-whatever-the-heck-we-are civilization. Shouldn't interfere with you. So uh, go away, and uh, we'll talk to you later. (laughs) Oh! Our second prize is the whoops prize, which goes to Scotty for an accidental kidnapping, uh... 
It was really accidental, but still, he did kidnap a kid here. And so, uh, what does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins the space elephant Amber Alert. Like that would keep them from having to torture Kirk's brain. A big uh, you know, uh, sign pops up in front of the Enterprise. Is like you know, you know, looking for a you know, kid uh, been uh, abducted by a spaceship. But this description, it's got to be like, uh oh, <laughs> kid last seen abducted by a spacecraft with large saucer. Child is about six feet tall, seven feet long, large chunky thing. Seven tons, you know. <laughs> Our final prize is the Meta Concert Prize, which goes to our zoo-kept crew for unifying their minds together to get the attention of the aliens and to defend Kirk. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They win tinfoil. Nothing keeps your brain space safe like good old tinfoil hat. <laughs> you know, uh, our tinfoil hats will protect us from the dark ones. That's a Futurama reference there. Take us away, Gepwin. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us here and we hope you had a lot of fun on the galaxy's favorite game show. So, um, the meta concert there—that's uh, actually a reference to a series of books from, by Julian May about. People with psychic powers. I was wondering about that because I wasn't familiar with that as a word. Yeah, uh, the uh, it's basically linking your minds together for a common uh, task. Uh, it's like, oh, we want to move this asteroid with our mind, so we're everyone who's good at psychokinesis come together and we'll do that. Or uh, we need to uh, reach out into deep space and tell the aliens out there, it's like, hey, we're ready to like have first contact. Could you come make first contact with us, please? It, it will help us a lot here because you know. We're lonely. And so well, they join their minds together, and there you go. That sounds useful. Uh, or uh, in uh, you know, in one of the uh, different timeline bits, uh, there's time travel involved. Uh, it's like, all right, so we're going to uh, come together, and uh, there's this one person who's completely lost it, and they're going to be a threat to everyone, but um, they're kind of more powerful than all of us individually. But if we can come together, we can trap them in a weird uh sort of psychic prison and also flood the Mediterranean at the same time. Let's do that together. Come on, <laughs> link brains, people. <laughs> and then they did. Meta <laughs> concerts for when you need to uh overcome somebody in like on individual individual basis and you got a lot of people on standby. Alright, if we link our brains together, we can figure out whether this next episode is going to be horrible. Because I'm skeptical, well, given the title. Uh, what, what is the title? The title is the Jihad. So uh, the the, uh, the the Arabic word for like struggle and things like that. Eh? Yeah, which um, in the 2000s became a pretty racist thing that was used against a lot of uh, populations to sort of demonize their uh, religion and talk about how dangerous they were. How it was being used in the 70s, I'm not sure, because... Uh, I actually don't really know how people felt about this as a term in the 70s. It actually didn't, as to my mind, come into wide use until the 2000s in the Western world. There was, a, I guess, uh, some post-Iranian uh, 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 revolution there, uh, some uh, it kind of popping up a bit. Um, but uh, this is still before that. So, you know, that was like 79 there. And so this is still 75, uh, 70, I forget when we're 74. at. 74. Right 74, there we go. I was close. 
Uh, and so it's, you know, it is different connotations and those connotations have changed wildly over time. But I guess to a certain degree, it's still sort of associated with the idea of some sort of holy war. Uh, and I guess specifically involving people that are not as familiar as people in America in the 70s would be. So in Star Trek terms, that means aliens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as awkward as that might be. So this episode, I don't know because it's written by the person who did all of the mud episodes. Um, How, which uh, no, no, no. I don't Stone love. Candle. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're de- it's a weird one because they're actually decently written episodes, but the, a- the character is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is kind of awkward. Uh, so this is going to be kind of disconnected from, this is going to be like disconnected from the, from that. So I don't know. So I, I guess we'll, uh, we'll have to find out. Uh, yeah, maybe there'll be a surprise visit by Harry Mudd. Huh. Maybe. <laughs> so basically the Enterprise is going to have to find a religious artifact to stop a holy war. And there's a bug named M3 Green, apparently. Mr. Bug, don't be too annoying, please. Though it does remind me of a character I played uh, in a, uh, a a short film uh, in college. I was 57 green on one of the uh, characters I was playing. <laughs> Want me to tell you the whole plot of that, or uh, should I save that for later? <laughs> I think we can leave it there. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just sounds like a bingo call or something. <laughs> it, was, it was the hacker alias. Come on. <laughs> Wait a moment. Is our bug alien a hacker? Master lockpick, apparently. So kind of. <laughs> the Thrycreens. For anyone who follows D and D. So our rogue of the group. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea how this is gonna be, but I guess we're gonna have to find out next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, time for Star Trek Avengers! have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>